Well, there's a large box of roofing nails that fell off the truck in front of you about a quarter mile ahead of you, and it's nighttime. There's an invisible bacteria in the gas station sandwich you thought would be a good idea to pick up for lunch. Um, When you opened a suspicious-looking email, your computer downloaded a virus. There's cholesterol building up in your arteries, and it has been for years, and you don't know it. There's an alligator lurking just under the surface of the murky swamp you're wading through. Um, These and many other examples of this prove this point, that things that you cannot see can make a big difference in your life. I mean, that's true in those kind of normal things of life, but we'll see it's true in the bigger issues of life, too. You know, we we have technologies now that allow us to see things that we used to not be able to see, that used to be concealed from us. We have sonar to see the ocean depths. We have x-ray technology that can see bones of the body. We have ultrasounds and the 3D ultrasounds that get to let us see uh, strangely clear pictures of, of unborn babies. We have CT scans and MRIs and we have night vision capabilities and, and we have telescopes that allow us to see things that are so small that our human eye couldn't possibly see them without that technology. And we have microscopes that allow us to see things that are so small and, and that we couldn't see them with the naked eye. But there's a type of, of vision that's far more important and useful than seeing through pitch black darkness. And there's a type of vision that can't be produced or even enhanced with technology. This, is, this vision allows us to see reality, to see things as they really are. You know, reality is, is a buzzword in our day. I mean, there's virtual reality where it simulates reality through technology. And we have, of course, reality television, which, which simulates reality uh, by manipulated uh, circumstances. But real reality consists of two realms, the spiritual realm and the physical realm, the, the natural realm and the supernatural Realm. We know this from Scripture. If, if, only, if you only see one realm, then you don't see the whole of reality. You're missing it. And some would say that if we're trying to perceive the unseen, then we're really out of touch with reality. But that's, that's not true at all. It's the exact opposite. It's only as we're able to, to better comprehend and understand the unseen realm that we get a clear picture of the way things really are. If you're making decisions in your life based only on what you see with your physical eye, you're, you're using far less than half of the information you need. Blindness to either of these realms is a serious handicap. You understand the handicap of blindness and the, uh, the, the difficult physical blindness, the difficulty that brings in life, just navigating through normal daily tasks and stumbling around, not able to find things. It slows you down. It, it brings dangers. But there are two main errors in thinking about spiritual and physical um, vision and, and the spirit, physical and spiritual period. One is that only the spiritual is real. 
Only the spiritual is real. This is what the Eastern religions believe, that, that the physical is an illusion. Everything here, all the chairs, building, this is, this is, un, this is an illusion. We need, we need to transcend to a higher reality through usually trans, uh, transcendental meditation or something. And just blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's just foolishness. It, clearly, we, there's physical reality. But, but the second error is to say that only the physical is real. This is, this is Western religion. This is materialism and naturalism and atheism. Money, jobs, family, cars, vacations, those things are real. And you're a weirdo if you think there's anything more than the stuff that we can see physically, test, scientifically. That's the popular religion and worldview of our day in the West. And it has infected the church. There's little to no thought of heaven and hell and angels and demons and the Holy Spirit, God. Even, even in churches, this is a reality. So with that in mind, let, let's turn our attention to 2 Kings chapter 6 this morning. Now, last week I didn't finish the last week's message. And rather than tacking on the final point of last week's message, I just wrote a little bulletin article just going over that those First verses of chapter 6 and the last point of the, the message last week. Read that later, please. But how does this episode that we're going to see in Second Kings chapter 6 and verse 8 and following, how does this be- help us better understand reality? And that's what I want us to see. We'll walk through the text. I'll make a couple applications. And, and then we'll go to the Lord's table this morning. The context, we know, we've been in Second in, in Kings working our way through this book for some time. Elisha is in a dark, dark time. There's, there's blatant enmity against the Lord, against the Lord's prophet, against God's people, Israel. And, and it comes from within, it comes from without. The king of Syria, or Aram, depending on your translation, is warring against Israel, we see in verse 8. And, and the, that idea of warring, it's not just your traditional battle. Two sides, two armies line up, and they, they go and they... Duke it out. That's not it. it. This idea is just an ongoing, sustained fighting, like guerrilla-style warfare. Constant terrorism, we might even say. Just these little cells going and attacking Israel in different places and wreaking havoc. The, the Syrian king has been Hadad I. The Israelite king is probably Jehoram, son of Ahab. And so there's a long history between Ben-Hadad and Israel. 1 Kings 20, we saw this several weeks ago now. Uh, there was, there was a, um, a war against uh, Israel from Syria when Ahab was king. Uh, the, the king of, Is, of Syria assembled all his army, the text says. All of it. And he got 32 other kings to join him. And they had horses and chariots. And so this massive force. And God was merciful, though, to even to wicked King Ahab. And he thwarted the plans of the king of Syria. And so Ben-Hadad, what we see at the end of that scene is him fleeing on horseback for his life. His whole army is slaughtered. And so then we saw last week in 2 Kings chapter 5 an incident with Syria. Uh, This king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, he writes a letter to, to Ahab's son appealing for the king of Israel to help with the, his leprous commander of his army. And so Naaman, you remember. And so I won't repeat everything from last week, but God was gracious. He did heal Naaman through Elisha. 
body and soul. Remember, he, he went to Israel from Syria as an uh, idolatrous leper. And he returned to Syria, Syria as a healed worshiper of the Lord. And so we, what a wonderful scene. And so then we have our text this morning, verses 8 to 23 of Second Kings 6. Next week, we'll pick up the story and there will be another scene in, in verse 24 all the way into chapter 7 where Ben-Hadad invades Israel again. So we'll see that next time. But this opposition against Israel and against Elisha by Syria is really opposition against the Lord. You need to, you need to understand that. God has shown tremendous mercy to the Syrians and to their, to their king even. We, we, we know that God blessed the Syrians with success. We saw this in the first verse of chapter 5. By him, by Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. God had supported them. God blessed the Syrians with healing and with salvation as Naaman was restored and makes that that grand confession of faith. I know there is no God, no God in all the earth, but in Israel. And even in our text, it's God's mercy to crush the pride of the Syrians. This is all God's grace, but in spite of God's mercy, the Syrians and their king only harden their hearts even further against the Lord. And this is seen in a number of ways. And now we get into our text. The first way we see it is in their, their naturalistic explanation of God's worth. Naturalism is just seeing things only through physical eyes. Their naturalistic explanation of God's work. Verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with the servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Then he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So Ben-Hadad is making plans to attack the Israelites in certain places, but Elisha is getting these daily intelligence briefings from the Lord. And he's passing them on to the king of Israel. And so every time Syria shows up to fight Israel in one of these little skirmishes, Israelites are prepared and they're not overtaken. Every time. It just keeps happening. Verse 11. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? It must be an insider job. There, there's, There's... There's this information leak in Edward Snowden uh, of, of, in Syria, a spy who's, who's leaking this information to them. The, the thought never occurs to him that the living God was thwarting his plans, his wicked plans. So there's this naturalistic explanation of what God is doing. Second, there's this naturalistic assumption. Again, these are just showing the hardness of Syria and, and the Syrian king's hearts. This naturalistic assumption. Ben Hadad, he, he makes his plans then in his bedroom, the text says. And so in, in verse, uh, verse 12. And one, uh, uh, and one of his servants said, No, my Lord. Uh, wait, excuse me. Where? Uh, my, 
Okay, verse, yeah, verse 12. And one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he's, he's making his plans in his bedroom. Your bedroom, that's the most private room in the house. I mean, that's still true today. We had our ETSI the other night. I don't think anybody in our group saw our bedroom. If you did, I, I, we didn't know it. So that's a little weird. But, um, but we, you know, bedroom, that's where private, the most intimate matters are discussed. And so he's, he's in his bedroom, the most concealed room of the house. And, and yet God hears what Ben-Hadad says in the bedroom, in the privacy of his room, and passes it on to Elisha. The word, the word speaks there. It's an intensive form of the verb in, in Hebrew. It's the idea is that it's, it's these are important matters being discussed. Not just small talk, but it's, it's, they're making plans. And, and when, quen, when questioned by Ben-Hadad, who is, who's leaked this information, again, one of the servants says, No, Elisha knows what you say. He, he's tapped your phones. He's bugged your bedroom. He knows what's going on. He calls Elisha a prophet. That, that's just a general word. It could mean a psychic, a seer. So he, he's probably implying something like, Elisha has psychic powers. That's all he's saying. But that's not the case at all. He has no psychic powers. The Lord, the Lord has superpowers. He has omnipresence. He has omniscience. He knows everything. But he has this naturalistic assumption and Elisha only speaks what God reveals to him. And then finally, he has this naturalistic plan. Verse 13. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. Seize Elisha. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. So he assembles this massive army to get one man. Elisha. Horses and chariots. Apache helicopters, Abrams tanks. I mean, this, this massive fighting force to get one psychic is how they see it. Great army, large number of soldiers. So the king intends to completely overwhelm Elisha and anybody who else might be with him. And so we have this God-defiant, God-hating pagan king who's warring against Israel and fighting against God's prophet and, and he moves in on the little city of Dothan, more of a village where Elisha is. A small city set on a little bit of a hill with other larger hills surrounding it and a valley in between. And so you can kind of picture a sombrero. You know, you have a, high, a little raised part in the middle and then larger mountains around. That's Dothan. And so Elisha and the prophets, the, the other kind of prophetic students of his they're they're surrounded verse 14 the end of verse 14 and they came by night and they surrounded the city now it's interesting to wonder if elisha knew what was going on out there did, did he know that the great army was surrounding him and yet he just slept like a baby he trusted trusted the lord in that he just wasn't concerned or did god refrain from even giving him that knowledge you know, it's God's grace to us to not give us everything, all the information. Thank, thank you, Lord. I, I, I don't know, but, but was, whether he, he was told about the attacks on Israel uh, or the attacks. I mean, he was told about the attacks on Israel. I don't know if he's told about the, the threat on his own life. But verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning 
and went out. Let me just stop there. That little phrase, rose early. In the Hebrew, it's a causative verb. It just means he was caused to rise early. It's not that he was just a morning person and he got up before everybody else every day. No, something, something woke him up. Was, was, you've been awakened before. Rumbles of thunder in the morning, some one of those early morning thunderstorms that comes through, and a rain or wind or something, and it wakes you up, and you, you, and you often will go out and check and see if there's any storm damage. Well, this is this is it. He's caused to rise early. Something was it the rumble of the chariots and the horses with the foot soldiers? No, no. But verse 15, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. Surrounded, two unarmed men and maybe maybe others, but they're surrounded by this great army, totally unprepared. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Literally, how shall we do? How are we possibly going to get out of this alive? He's asking total despair, completely overcome with fear in the face of these these just desperate circumstances. Elisha's response, verse 16, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. He's calm, cool, collected. He speaks truth to his servant. Don't. Fear, it's okay, we're, we're safe. And we've, you just play that scenario of again of the early morning thunderstorm and you as parents of young ones, your kids come running in there and crawl in bed with you and they're frightened and they're scared. It's okay. And you remind them of what's true. God's in charge and we have this nice house and we're, we're okay. Thank God for these things. But inside there's that gnawing fear yourself. But you're reassuring them, I don't, whether that's what's in Elisha's heart, we don't know. But Elisha's servant here, he's, he's probably questioning, uh, questioning Elisha's ability to do just basic math. <laughs> Elisha says, there's more with us than there are with them. And he's looking out and thinking, wait, there's thousands, thousands of them. There's two or ten or twenty of us. I don't know, we don't know how many exactly. How, how is that possible, Elisha? Maybe Elisha knows something that he doesn't know. Maybe, maybe Elisha called on help and the Israelite army is just over those hills and they're ready to ambush the, the Syrian army. So he's trying to figure this out, but Elisha understood this. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. There's others in Scripture and history who've, who've, got, who un, who've understood this. Hezekiah knew this, uh, though he probably didn't get to see it like Elisha did. In 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 7 and 8, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Martin Luther, the great reformer, understood this too when he was called upon to recant his writings, to... To recant his teachings, he stood before that uh, Roman Catholic council and said, I know and am certain that our Lord Jesus Christ still lives and rules. 
Therefore, I will not fear 10,000 popes, for he who is with me is greater than he that is in the world. Verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The Lord gives him eyes to see the unseen, to see reality. And you compare that behold in this verse, in verse 17, to the behold of verse 15. He wakes up early, he's caused to rise early. And behold, army with chariots and horses surrounding the city. Now in verse 17, behold, the Lord opens his eyes and behold, the armies of heaven right there. Horses, chariots of fire. He gets to see what's going on behind the scenes. You have your word processing program. I think that every word processor has this feature. It used to be reveal codes back in the word perfect days. I don't think anybody, I don't think word perfect exists anymore. But in, in the, the program I use, it's called show invisibles. It basically, you hit that key and, and instantly, everything that's really going on behind the scenes, you know, we type and we just see letters on a page. But every time you hit a space bar or a shift key or a, or a command key or you change something, you adjust the style, there's, there's programming things that are happening behind the scenes. And, and what's happening here is this, is this is God basically showing the invisibles to Elisha and a servant, showing them what's really taking place behind the scenes. God opens Elisha's and the servant's eyes to reveal codes. And and what they see is that the armies of heaven have assembled for their protection. They see the angels of God, not clothed in white robes, but in battle array, fighting for them. Now, Now, again, the geography, remember, Dothan is this little hill on a... Big, surrounded by bigger hills. So it's probably that the Syrians are in the valley around Dothan. And yet here are the God's armies. They station themselves right at the bottom of that hill between the armies of Syria and Elisha. He, he got to see what David knew in Psalm 34 verse 7. Maybe Elisha was singing this this morning. In the morning this is happening. As the angel of the Lord... And camps around those who fear him and delivers them. God steps in, protects them. Now the real, real miracle in this story, don't miss this, it's not God's providential care. That's going on all the time. The miracle is not even the heavenly armies showing up. It's not the horses of fire and the chariots of fire. The miracle is that Elisha and his attendant have eyes to see these things. The the horses and the chariots of fire don't come when Elisha prays. They were already there. They just couldn't see them. The answer to Elisha's prayer was having eyes to see the reality of what was taking place. God's protection of his people. We don't even understand all the ways and the means that God uses to protect us, brothers and sisters. But he cares for us. 
He delivers us all of the times, even when we don't understand there's a threat. So the Syrians, they start to advance on the city. Elisha prays and asks the Lord then, we see, to blind the soldiers. As we read through this, God answers. No battle even takes place as we expect. We're ready for this heavenly human showdown here. Be honest, you're ready to see that. We want to see some hobbit kind of battle scene here. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Elisha leads these these blinded soldiers to Samaria, to Elisha's home region, to right to the king of Israel. You can just imagine what this looked like to passers-by as, as Elisha leads these blinded soldiers in line, this great Syrian army, all the way into Samaria. These, these just helpless soldiers. And yet, they get there, And Elisha prays the exact same thing that he prayed for a servant. He prays in verse 20, Open their eyes. And again, the Lord answers. And behold, verse 20, they were in the midst of Samaria. What a shocker that was for those Syrian soldiers. The king of Israel standing right in front of them. They've just been delivered into the hands of their enemy. This is their worst nightmare. They're toast. That's what they're thinking. And the king of Israel asks Elisha, Shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He's a little trigger happy, isn't he? <laughs> Understandably so. I mean, God has brought his enemies right into his hands. And Elisha says, though, no. Instead, he tells him, You tell your cooks to stoke the fires, to cook a, a feast, a scrumptious feast for these men. You feed them, you give them something to drink, and you send them on their way back to Syria. That's what he says. It's mercy. Verse 23, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel, or some translation, or the marauding bands of Syrians didn't come again into Israel. The guerrilla-style warfare ceased. These militia groups laid down their arms. Now, we're going to see next week that the king of Syria continued to send his great army, that official great army, against Israel. But these little terror cells, they stopped. Now the crux of this whole section is in the question of Elisha's servant. What shall we do? What shall we do? Great army, chariots, horses, surrounded, no way of escape. The odds are are insurmountably high. Stacked against them. Total despair with no hope of any way of escape. What shall we do? Is that a question you've asked before? Is that a question you're asking right now? What are are we going to do? What am I going to do? I don't see any way out of this. I don't see any light at the end of this tunnel that is my life right now. Maybe you're besieged by the news that you or someone close to you has cancer. Maybe you're surrounded and defenseless facing the prospect of job loss, imminent job loss. How are you possibly going to provide for your family? Maybe your sinful habits have you backed into a corner and the debtors are are harassing you. And you don't know how you're going to get out of this. 
Parents, maybe you're just overwhelmed by a rebellious teenager, son or daughter. How are you going to shepherd their hearts? Maybe you haven't woken up. Maybe you haven't beheld the great army that's surrounding you. You don't, you're still sleeping peacefully. You don't, you're oblivious to what's going on around you. But tomorrow morning, something's coming. Or it's around the corner. I'm not trying to frighten you, but it's the reality of life in a fallen world. There's going to be those times when we say, what are we going to do? What am I supposed to do? It's so frightening. How will you handle it? And beyond asking that personally, we, we can ask that question as a church. Well, what are we supposed to do? We, we have this community full of lost souls around us. That, that, that How are we possibly going to reach them? We have needs around the world. We see and we know more than ever with the technology and the communication. And we know of the needs and it's so vast. What can we possibly do? We have loads of kids, and these are, this is God's mercy to us as a church, but how are we going to raise them to be courageous, God-fearing, spirit-filled, Christ-loving, soul-winning, risk-taking, gospel-cherishing young men and women in a culture that's so opposed to those things? How, how are we possibly going to do that? What shall we do? Well, Elisha... He answers the fears of a servant with two things, in two ways. The first thing he does is he proclaims God's truth to him. He says, we are not alone. That's God's revealed truth. Second thing he does is he prays for the servant's eyes to be opened so that he can see and lay hold of that truth. And that's instructive for us. What should we do when we're asking that question what shall we do when we're overwhelmed by opposition? I want us to just consider these two things real quick before we go to the table. First thing we need to do is this, is plant yourself in truth. Plant yourself in truth. That's so counterintuitive to what we tend to do. We, we just, we get so disoriented and we start running and chasing and thinking and trying to feel our way along. No, we need God's truth. We don't... We're not playing little mind games to make ourselves feel better about our circumstances. No, we need to wrap our minds, our hearts, our affections around God's unchanging, eternal, sufficient, perfect word. Plant yourself in the truth. Fear not. There are more with us than against us. That is always true for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Romans 8.31, in that passage, there's this great crescendo of language. God is sovereignly working both to save and to preserve His people. He will not let them go. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can. Nothing ever will. And then there's this, this grand statement in verse 31 of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? The, the verse does not mean that God signs on to whatever whatever you want to do and he's going to give success to your plans. That's not what that's saying. I, I want to be in the NFL. I want to be a quarterback in the NFL. And and so God says, okay, that's right. If I, I'm for you, so nothing can stop you in that. That's not it at all. It's, this means that we can have confidence in God's perfect will. And it cannot be thwarted by anything, not Tribulation or distress or famine or peril or sickness or sword or anything. 
Angels, demons, nothing, Paul says. This isn't God's seal of approval on our desires. This is his seal of approval on his perfect desires for us. Nothing can be stopped. And if you want a, you want a, a, a perfect example of this, it's the people of Israel. God's sovereign care and grace extended to them. There's nothing special about Israel as a people of God in themselves that God should protect them. The only thing great about Israel is Israel's God as a people. It's because they're called by his name that they're preserved. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And so when you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I am with you because you are mine. It's because of who God is that we have this assurance. Not because of how special we are. Matthew 28, we have those final words of Jesus to his disciples. He's giving them their marching orders. And he says, all the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is with us. He's promised to always be with us to help us carry out the mission that he's left for us. That does not mean that life will always be easy. That does not mean that we are not, that, that we as sinners won't experience consequences for our sin. That does not mean, mean there won't be enemies who rise up against us and oppose us and even kill us. But we have this assurance that nothing can separate us from God's presence. Nothing can separate us from his Love, He's with us always to the end of the age. There's, a, there's this assurance, and so we have to plant ourselves in this truth. There are more with us than those who are with them. And, and you know, that, that truth, that, unfixed, or that fixed reality, that unchanging truth, it, it takes different forms. The expression of God's care and God's presence with us comes in different ways and just as an example of that there's another instance at dothan where god providentially cares for his children though it's in a much different much more painful way you know we like to put god in our box we want to we want god to come through the same time every time god blind them and lead them away from us that's how we want to think but that's not how god always works joseph came into the valley of dothan looking for his brothers and as they came near to him, they plotted to kill him. One of his brothers had pity on him, so they ended up throwing him in a pit with no food or water. Eventually, he's sold into slavery. They tell his dad that he's dead. Was God in that? Why, didn't, why couldn't God just rescue him immediately? Spare him of that? What, I mean, in some ways, slavery is worse than death. Later, we see Joseph's 
Joseph's commentary on this account. He, and he, he saw God in that situation. Genesis 45, 8 to his brothers. It, it was not you who sent me here. It was God. You, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. God was in it. Job, if ever someone question, could question God's care of him, it was him. Job's final confession. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and repent in dust and ashes. God's answer is not always the easy, comfortable, quick answer we're looking for. But what he does give us is this promise and this comfort that he is there. God is for us. Who is against us? He's not sleeping. He's working. His power is greater than whatever problem we're facing. And you think about that. You may feel stuck. You may think that you are done for. God is able. He is near. We, we have trouble seeing that, don't we? We plan ourselves in the truth, but we need God's help to really embrace that. And so the second thing is pray that the Lord will open your eyes. Pray that the Lord will open your eyes. Ephesians, twice in, this, in the letter of Ephesians, Paul prays along these lines. He's, he's communicating this, this riches of the gospel to this church at Ephesus. And he's just giving them this great doctrine of, of the good news of Jesus Christ. What God has done for us in Christ. There's no commands in those first three chapters. But anchored in that section of instruction, there are these two prayers. And they're this, verse 18 of chapter 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You need light eyes to be able to embrace and understand these truths. And in verse 18 of chapter 3, I pray that you may be able to comprehend. That's God's gift to be able to understand and see and to comprehend and to apprehend these, these glorious truths of God's comfort and presence. His working for us. It's not normal to understand these things. God has to give us the ability to grasp them. So pray for yourself that God would open your eyes to see. Pray for your children that they would have eyes to see God, to see the gospel, to see themselves, to see the world rightly. Pray for one another in this church. What do do enlightened eyes do for us when God answers that prayer? What what happens? Just a couple of things. Spiritual vision helps us to see God's revealed truth more clearly. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Spiritual vision helps us to see the harvest field. John 4, 35. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Spiritual vision keeps us from getting burned out in the Lord's work. 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away and our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Spiritual vision helps us Behold, to be bold and fearless. We see it, Hebrews eleven twenty seven. Moses, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. He had eyes to see that God was with them. 
Philippians 4, 5, let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Do you have eyes to see that? Spiritual vision helps us love Christ and rejoice in Him more. 1 Peter 1, 8, though you have not seen Him physically, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So are you crying out? Are you saying, what what shall I do? Parents, in in evangelism in your neighborhood, there's so many people, so little interest. Take heart. Don't fear. There are more with us than with them. There There are armies of heaven are fighting on our behalf. We have God's assurance of this. We don't have to go down to Egypt. We don't have to amass our own chariots and horses to fight this battle. God is for us. We trust Him. Parents, don't ditch God's wisdom thinking that you can go down to Israel and find better wisdom, better means to shepherd the hearts of your children through some moralism or just materialist or uh, um, militaristic, uh, rule-centered, legalistic formula for raising perfect kids. Trust God. Shepherd their hearts. Plead the gospel with them. And teach them and model a Christ-like attitude and behavior. Teach your children discipline. And be consistent and loving in that. So this, we, we want God's ways and we want to trust His singles. You, you're, you're not satisfied with your station in life, but don't go down to Egypt and find chariots and horses. Don't think that, that you've got to compromise God's standards of what an equally yoked couple is. Don't think you've got to ditch this assembly and you're willing to go to another church where the word isn't preached, but they have plenty of young, beautiful singles there. Trust the Lord. In, in evangelism, again, don't think that we need some new trinket or new clever approach. We need to show compassion to people. Faithfully preach Christ. Get to know the lost. Be among them. Know people at work, our neighbors, our friends, family. And, and, and faithfully pray and, and plead the gospel with them. Sowing the seed of the gospel. Trusting the Lord to bring it to fruition. I, we have, you have an opportunity to do that. We have... In your boxes downstairs, we have these invites for Good Friday and Easter service. Both services are going to be really tailored toward, they're going to be evangelistic. And, and so please use these. We have thousands of these invites. And so that you have some in your box, we have plenty more. And so invite people to, to be with us on those days. And, and there's a gospel track that's included. And use this. Make a commitment. I'm going to at least one person I'm going to share this track with. And, and walk through it with them and follow up with them over the next month uh, or before Easter. And so please do that and pass all of those out and get more. And, and, so, and we want to trust the Lord for that. But we as a church, we're asking that. What, what shall we do? There, there, there are, the elders begin, began the year asking that very question. We'll have more, on, more information about this in the next week or two. But I, I just alert you now and we'll share more about this but we're we're in the planning of 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 a eight or nine month process of of seeking the lord for what he has next for us as a church like in the next five years where does god want us to be as a body 
And so this is not us, not because we read a new church book like it has some new how-to method for a church. No, it's because we just see so many needs in our body, in our community, around the world. We say, God, what are we going to do? So we're seeking him. We're asking and begging for him to direct us and to provide for us and, and to, to lead us in this process. And so we'll have more to share about this, as I said. But it's a, a parallel to this text, Second Chronicles twenty twelve, a chapter that should mean a lot to us as a church. But in that passage, there's enemies attacking. Defeat seems inevitable for Judah. And they say, we do not know what to do. They're saying this to God. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, God. Our eyes are on you. We don't have all, all figured out. But do you know that? Do you know what that kind of desperation, desperation led Judah to? God defeated their enemies, again, against overwhelming odds, like in our text. The victory wasn't theirs, but it was the Lord's. And yet, verse 26 of that same chapter, and they assembled themselves on the fourth day in the valley of Baraka, Baraka, for there they bless the Lord. And so even as we are thinking as a church and as leaders pray for us, we have a meeting today to kind of finalize this, what this process will look like. But we're asking God to do through us what we could not possibly do ourselves. And we want to, five years from now, I mean, every, we want to always be there, but five years from now, be looking and be able to thank God and to stand in the valley of blessing and bless the Lord for what he's done, for lives changed, for souls saved. We look to him for that. So pray for us. And we'll have more to share about that. But where do the spiritual and eternal, where do the physical and temporal meet? Physical and spiritual, temporal and eternal meet. They meet in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. And we're going to come and we're going to eat and drink at the table in just a moment. And, and as we do, we, we remember this, that, that no one has seen God at any time. The only God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And God sent Christ into this world to open blind eyes. We we're all born spiritually blind, Paul says in Second Corinthians 4. And yet God said, light, let light shine in darkness. And He's shown in our hearts to, shut, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so those who are in Christ, we know that. Our eyes have been opened to see that. The darkness of our sin fell upon Jesus as he died for our sins so that we could have light and sight and life. And so we come to the table and we, 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 we will remember that together. Let's pray together. When we sang these words earlier, God, though Satan shall buffet, though trials should come, and Lord, we know that we know of many of the trials that are going on in lives right here in this room. But we have this blessed assurance, God. And I pray that this blessed assurance would indeed control our hearts that are prone to wonder, prone to worry. That Christ has regarded our helpless estate. And you've shed your own blood for our souls, Lord. May that sweet assurance just be ours and may we have eyes to see it and may we plant our feet uh, squarely on that truth, God, as we come and eat and drink at the table today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.